without because everything about this episode is making my survival instinct wanting to kick in and I kind of want to run away because I know I know given the current sociopolitical context, given the current geopolitics, given the fact that we are witnessing an ethnic cleansing and like the powers that be are refusing to do jack shit about it only for in 10 years time to ask themselves, guys, if we knew we could have done something, nigga, shut the fuck up. You knew you just don't give a fuck. Point is, point is a lot of different emotions, many of them having to do with frustration, aggression, anger. Um, dejection have been brought up whilst writing this episode and so yeah I just want to run away because I'm an avoidant bitch and I don't want to deal with my shit but nevertheless here we are intellectualizing my emotions rather than feeling them because once again I am an avoidant bitch Um, but today enough foreplay today we're going to be talking about Jesus, Zionism in Africa, specifically the Uganda plan. Now, I have discussed this before in brief in my episode about the White Highlands. Oh, by the way, hi, ho, hello. This is the Utajo Hujuri podcast. Welcome. Happy New Year. This is officially the first episode that I am recording for this new year. I'm so sorry. I forgot to do this introduction at the top because a bitch was fucking anxious. Um, but I'm okay. Are you okay? I'm I'm assuming because I can't hear you that you are either fine or not okay or somewhere in between or both or neither. Either way, I just want you to know that things are going to get better. I don't know when, um, but things are going to get better. Um, so hi. Hi. Um, back, to, back, back to the script because yeah, this episode had to be meticulously scripted because of what we are talking about, which is once again, Zionism in Africa. Now, recent events have made it absolutely necessary to discuss the history of Zionism outside of Palestine. And I want to do this for two reasons. First, the justification I've heard from a lot of Zionists is that they belong to the land of Palestine too, that it is their home and that it is, they just simply want to go back. And historically speaking, it's it, it, this, this is not true because this reasoning makes it sound like Palestine was the only option for Jewish settlement when settler colonies in Argentina, Mesopotamia, Brazil, Mexico, Texas, Canada, and Kenya, as we will discuss, were all considered um, at the Zionist Congress, I think the 6th and the 7th Zionist Congresses. And ultimately, all these options were rejected um, by narrow margins, which is to say that Palestine was not your destiny. Palestine was a choice that you made. Um, And framing it as an intentional choice that you made helps further contextualize everything that is going on right now as the consequences of a deliberate choice, even if this was your God-given destiny, even if Palestine was your God-given destiny. That would not obfuscate, that would not justify or in any way excuse what is currently being done to the Palestinians, all right? Which then takes me to the second reason why I think we should be talking about the Uganda plan, at least a lot more than we do. And that's because it is a very critical episode in the development of Zionism as an ideology and in firming up its territorial ambitions. Um, Now, let me, before I begin, let me make this very fucking clear. Anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. As the Jewish Voices for Peace say, and I quote, falsely stating that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism conflates the all Jews with the Israeli state and endangers their communities. It fuels deadly violence and censorship campaigns against Palestinians, end quote. 
Being anti-Zionist means rejecting an ideology that privileges specific Jewish identities and Jewish lives over everyone else. Being anti-Zionist means rejecting the practices of settler colonialism. And being anti-Zionist means basically acknowledging that there is never an excuse and never a justification for an ethnic cleansing. To my mind, being anti-Zionist is a natural outpouring of my anti-colonial beliefs, right? If you are anti-colonial, you are naturally anti-Zionist. If you are anti-black racism, if, if, you're, if you're against anti-black racism, then you are naturally also against anti-Zionism because, and I cannot say this enough, all systems of oppression kind of work together and work together to suppress the people who are not, who, are, who have no societal value in the eyes of some. But having said this, I am not an idiot. I know that anti-Semites use the, the legitimate critiques of the, that can be leveled against the taste of Israel to fuel the hatred of the Jewish people. And that is fucking disgusting. We have to be intelligent enough as a people to separate a people from the actions of their state. And we must also be vigilant to stamp out anti-Semitism and call it out wherever we see it. It is unacceptable and will not be tolerated on my platform, nor will crying the anti-Semitic wolf to deny the legitimacy of anti-Zionist critique be tolerated. Tolerated. Everyone, including myself, will be held to the standard. Capiche? Okay, now before I continue, just allow me to issue a bit of a warning, which is that I do read um, a lot of anti-Semitic quotes, especially because when we talk about the Uganda plan, one of the reasons why it failed was because the white settlers of Kenya were virulently anti-Semitic. And so to kind of explain um, why it failed, I will be reading out some of the things that they said and they argued as well as debunking it and basically calling them out for their anti-Semitism and their stupidity. Um, having said it, I have tried my best to not have it be too gratuitous. Like anytime it's in the script, it is there on purpose in the sense of like I'm quoting a historical figure and it is important be a piece of context in order to understand um, the kind of story that I'm trying to tell you. Um, all right, are we good? Wonderful. Todie. And also, please God help me. So let's get started. But you know what kind of podcast this is. You know what kind of vibe we like. <laughs> God, the toad switch. Anyway, you know what kind of podcast this is. You know what kind of vibe we aspire to... I don't know, in gender and our audience and in our recording studio, which is now actually my room. I'm no longer in the closet because I finally got a mic and this bitch is loud. Like I am so far away and it is still catching every nuance of my voice. Oh, it's so nice. Point is, you know what kind of podcast this is? What am I drinking today? Um, today, as per, I am drinking my Kiricho Gold green tea and mint it is my favorite tea hashtag please sponsor bitch i drink way too much of your tea for free as it is and at this point you might as well start paying me because i've been gifting caricho gold green tea and mint to everyone and and basically proselytizing in your name so please i'm doing this labor for free i would appreciate being compensated with at least 100 boxes of tea at least at least nikidogo to nikidogo i do not ask for much um it is delicious it is refreshing and i feel like tea is gonna help keep me calm whilst i do the rest of this recording because at various bits i do get quite annoyed um i had to rewrite the script multiple times to keep me and the story on track um so <laughs> 
Um, by the time we get to the end of this very very long script, although not the longest script I've ever written, mind you, um, you will understand that Zionism isn't a static ideology. It is not fixed in stone. Um, what we know it as isn't what it has always been. And the Uganda plan, as I said at the very beginning, is key to the development of this ideology. Um, I also think the Uganda plan exposes the inherent contradictions of Zionism, that is, that an ideology born of the pain and suffering of Jewish people is willing to inflict that same pain and suffering onto others if it secures the safety of the Jewish of the Jewish people. And that's very interesting to me because I understand the like hurt people hurt people, like I get that. Um we've all done beginner therapy. <laughs> but I am also it's very, for want of a better word, interesting to see this very personal philosophy and very personal practice and, and almost praxis turned into national ideology and then justified as 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 a way of doing things. Um, so and that's and one of the reasons why it's very interesting to me is because almost every single emancipatory movement realizes the interconnectivity of systems of oppression, which is to say, none of us are free until we are all free. But it seems that the Zionist school of thought is never again will it be me. Like that is their version of revolutionary politics. It is quite self-centered and it makes it very difficult to empathize with its current trajectory. With its origins, I'm deeply empathetic to because how could you not be? But its current trajectory, I, 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 I don't know. Also, no, no. Um, therefore, this podcast episode will attempt to answer three questions. Number one, what is Zionism? Number two, what was the Zionist plan for Africa? And number three, why did it fail? And yes, I am treating this like a lesson because the clarity of a lesson structure allows me to be fucking clear about what I'm trying to do. So for the rest of the session, please call me Miss Aileen or Madam if you're nasty. <laughs> oh gosh, this is going to be such a bleak episode. Um, this, also, this takes us all to like a pre-question, which is, what is Palestine? And I wanted to start here for grounding Palestine because this land, specifically the land itself, is the object of lust for Zionism. It is their end goal, or rather it became their end goal after 1905. It is the reason why they rejected the option to start a Zionist state in Kenya. And it's also, they're also trying to erase Palestine as well, as we very speak. They're doing it through history, they're trying to erase their people and trying to appropriate its culture. So first, it is very important to note that like Palestine predates Israel. And before you say, but oh, it's in the Bible, let me remind you that that is immaterial. A religious affinity to the land does not give you a historic right to that land. Um, to quote Edward Said, and I quote, this is an instance of interpretive mischief, using a past dream to obliterate the realities lying between past and future, end quote. The realities being of the realities of migration and settlement elsewhere, and the fact that the resettlement of Palestine would have necessitated overwriting and obliterating Palestinian existence. These are not my words, although, as in they are, but this is not my opinion. This is also me paraphrasing quotations that I've heard from existing Israeli government officials and also the founding fathers of Zionism. Um, here's one right now. Moshe Dayan, an Israeli military leader and politician, said in 1969, and I quote, there is not one place built in this country that did not have a former Arab population. End quote. They had to eradicate Palestinian realities to create a fictionalized claim to the past. 
And all this takes us to a very important question, the first question, what is Zionism? Speaking incredibly broadly, I will use Shlomo Sands framing, my speaker just went off, I will use Shlomo Sands framing of Zionism because I find it incredibly telling. He says, and I quote, Zionism is a response to an emergency situation. And that situation is the reality of Jewish persecution and anti-Semitism. Much of this anti-Semitism was state-sponsored. Like you look to the pogroms in England in 1189 and 1190 and 1290, or the fact that the Starist and Soviet regimes frequently scapegoated Jewish communities in Russia, or the fact that Franklin Delano Roosevelt refused entry for into the US for Jewish refugees at the beginning of the Holocaust. Even today, we have like Republican, the Republican right wing are now scapegoating the Jewish community um, and trying to blame them, calling them um, globalists, right? Blame them for all their problems. Um, and of course, of course, we cannot forget the Nazis. Um, but in particular, like the specific instances of anti-Semitism that contributed to the birth of Zionism was the Pale of Settlement and Tsarist Russia, basically in the 19th century or the 1800s, where life for Jewish people was just truly horrific. Um, at this point, I'd, I'd highly recommend reading Joseph Roth's The Wandering Jews, um, if you'd like a first-hand account of what it was like to be an Eastern European Jew in this era. In it, he talks about the systematic and persistent discrimination and violence that Jewish people were subjected to in the era before the Holocaust and the ways Jewish people navigated this prejudice. In his book, The Inevitability and Goals of Oppression Cannot Be Denied, even if he's not very clear in stating them. It's, it's very clear if you just kind of do the math and think for yourself. And that goal is the erasure of the Jewish people. In short, and to summarize this incredible book, Jewish people were forced to live in ghettos where they were denied the most basic government services. Their movements, job opportunities, and civil rights were heavily restricted. And they were the victims of frequent pogroms, which is when a bunch of Gentiles or like non-Jewish people enter into a Jewish community and burn everything to the ground, loot everything and basically do their best to kick or to create a very difficult situ living situation for the Jewish communities there so that they will leave. That 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 is what that is what a pogrom is. Um and Jewish people, as I said, were the frequent victims of, of 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 these of these mass instances of violence and this is the environment in which zionism was born hence shlomo sand's framing of it as a response to an emergency situation because let's be very honest this was an emergency situation um and in this situation, I can imagine the only thing you're looking for is a sense of security and safety, and you just want the space to be left the fuck alone. Like, you just want to feel safe and build a home for yourself. And you'd want the freedom and the space as well to set up roots. Um, now, framed in this way, Zionism feels rational, dare I say, when framed in the context of Jewish oppression, it is not only reasonable, it feels legitimate. Of course, Jewish people deserve a home of their own. Everyone does. Everyone does. But I also feel it very important to say that being hurt does not allow you or justify you hurting other people. I, This is a lesson we learn when we are children. It is a shame that it is not a lesson we all had to learn, but then again, very clearly we were all brought up very differently. But I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna go there because that's defeating the point. Um, now that I've just described to you the emergency situation, let me explain to you like what Zionism is and the different types of Zionism that we're going to be talking about today. 
So first things first, there are multiple types of Zionism. They are interrelated and often built upon each other, but it is important to distinguish between them because they didn't all appear at the same time. The two that concern us here are political and territorial Zionism. Political Zionism was popularized by a man called Theodore Herzl. It was born from Herzl's experience as a Jewish person living in Europe, and shit was real bleak, to put it lightly. Um, We've already discussed this, and I cannot stress how awful it was. Again, still does not excuse um, where Zionism took us, um, because if it does, then boy, do a lot of people, specifically black people, have scores to settle. Um, Sorry, got distracted. Point is, whilst Herzl was living in Paris, he grew increasingly convinced that continued Gentile Jewish interaction would only result in anti-Semitism. It could only result in anti-Semitism. Writing in Der Judenstaat, and I quote, The Jewish question persists wherever Jews live in appreciable numbers. Wherever it does not exist, it is brought in together with Jewish immigrants. We are naturally drawn into those places where we are not persecuted, and our appearance there gives rise to persecution. This is the case and will inevitably be so everywhere. End quote. Well, I'm not one to tell you how to respond to your trauma, Um, but I should also note that by that same logic, racism and any kind of racial conflict is inevitable whenever people of different ethnicities or racial backgrounds are together in the same room, and therefore the solution for this is to remove the victims and and not punish the aggressors. Like, if that that's what it sounds like you're saying. And, like, again, I completely understand how, after centuries of this shit, you'd come to see your oppression as inevitable. And I, I, I also understand how you'd come to believe that your people are fundamentally different from everyone else and how they constitute an absolute other that, for their own protection and safety, must be removed from the general public. I mean, I feel like even in the US, after the... um the um the emancipation proclamation you had the rise of kind of black communities that were you know supporting themselves and funding themselves um a really good version example of this is tulsa before the tulsa race riot um because they were a self-serving black community that was quite wealthy before white people you know what kind of like oh no, these niggers have, and you know they said niggers have these um wealth and they're richer than me oh i don't that makes me feel insecure and weak because they're supposed to be worse than me. They're supposed to be trash. Okay. I don't like this at all. Um, So again, I completely understand where he's coming from, even if I disagree with the conclusion. Thus, Thus, Herzl ends um, their Judenstadt with a call for a Jewish state, specifically in Palestine. Um, That was around 1897. Um, And he specifically called for a home where the Jewish people could be safe and and have the freedoms of self-determination and be able to congregate together as a unified, um, homogeneous people. Um, And so in 1897, Herzl convened the first Zionist Congress. Here, the ethnic identity of the Jewish people was cemented as well as the final goal of Zionism, which was, and I quote, the aim of Zionism is to create for the Jewish people a home in Palestine secured by public law, 
end quote. And this is according to the Basel Program of 1897. Palestine was chosen, again, chosen, because Herzl recognized its symbolic power. With Palestine on the docket, everyone could get on board and do the necessary, which is migrate. Mind you, to a place already has people living in it, but no matter, Herzl had a plan for them. Palestine held this symbolic power because it was believed to be the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people. For more information about why this is a tenuous and problematic argument to make, I would recommend reading Shlomo Sand's works, in particular The Invention of the Jewish People and The Invention of Israel, because interrogating this claim is beyond the scope of this episode and I I will not be getting into it. Um, Herzl was aware that Palestine already had people living in it, as were a lot of early um, Jewish Zionists. Everyone was kind of aware that, like, ayo, um, I know we're all saying that we should all be migrating to this to this to this land, but like, it's not empty. <laughs> there are very there are very clearly people who were there, and like, I I would imagine these people might have or might not respond positively um, to being kicked out of their homes. Um, but this recognition that. Yes, there are people there, and yes, we would go there to supplant them. Suggests this very early connection between Zionism and colonialism. Um, In fact, in 1896, before Palestine was declared to be the homeland of Israel and, sorry, homeland of the Jewish people and the ultimate goal for Zionism, the Jewish Chronicle proudly proclaimed that, and I quote, Jews possess at least three of the most important qualifications which go to make successful colonists, climactic adaptability, linguistic talents, and trading instincts. End quote. This feeling comes from the sense that Jews in the diaspora, aka Jewish people living outside of Palestine, constituted a colony because you know they were outside of their home, and Africa was central to the re- to the reimagining of Zionism as colonialism and the Jewish people as colonizers. As Eitan Bar Yusuf said, and I quote: "Africa is a space in which personal and national fantasies can be acted out and made explicit." End quote. So, as Jewish persecution increased across Western and particularly Eastern Europe, Herzl considered other options. In particular, the 1903 Kizhenev pogrom got Herzl to reconsider settlement anywhere else, um, in particular East Africa. Even though practical Zionism had begun to create a path into Palestine from around the 1800s with a lot of Jewish migrants moving into Palestine and settling there, the levels of migration were not enough to realize a Zionist state, at least not for Herzl. Quoting from Yitzhak Konforti, and I quote, According to Herzl, the Jewish state would not be built by purchasing private lands in Palestine, but through achieving international recognition through the chosen representatives of the Jewish people. End quote. And history has shown him to be right, with horrific consequences. As a result of Herzl's belief that the Zionist state of Israel can only exist not by a mass migration, but through diplomatic connections and uh, diplomatic legitimation, Herzl expended a lot of energy forming diplomatic connections and securing the political backing for a Zionist state and a Zionist state in Palestine, as one does not necessarily mean the other. It's it's, it's kind of like a all thumbs are fingers, but not all fingers are thumbs type situation. (laughs) And through this hard work, Herzl managed to secure a proposal for a Zionist state in Africa. And here is where we turn to the 
weirdly named Uganda plan because it had nothing to do with Uganda. This plan was literally about Kenya, but for some reason, it's called... Okay, I know the reason. I'm going to tell you the reason. But for right now, I'm going to inhabit the role of, like, you know, a person that doesn't know. And trust me, it's deeply frustrating because it just... It, it, it sends a wrong message that it was about Uganda when it really was about Kenya. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Um, yes, I was turning my attention to the wrongly named Uganda plan. Now, Herzl drew inspiration from British colonizers in his imagining of the Zionist state. At this point, I do want to make a quick note about serenology, which is something I should have done further up here. Um, I feel like I did at some point in the script, but I did not talk about it. And essentially, the point I'm trying to make here is that any time I'm referring to the state of Israel, I'm going to refer to it as a Zionist state um, because I don't feel comfortable calling Israel a Jewish state because that's not what it is. There are Arab Israelis, there are Christian Israelis. It is not an ethno-nationalist state, even though it professes an ethno-nationalist ideology, which is Zionism. I also feel really icky um, conflating the Jewish identity with the Israeli state because I'm very well aware that those two things are separate, as, the, as, as, as I once quoted from the Jewish Voices for Peace. And I also want to be clear in my understanding and in my belief that not all Jewish people support what is being done in their name. So referring to the ultimate goal of Zionism as a Zionist state is a much clearer a depiction of what we're dealing with and it makes it a lot easier for me to talk about the politics and the ideology and the philosophy without necessarily like delving into that deep too much into like the eth the ethno-nationalism that is at play here mainly because I'm not trying to catch that smoke right now I have not done that research um one day I will but as I was doing this I kind of got the sense of how overwhelming it is interesting deeply fascinating but so overwhelming. <laughs> um, so um, there's my note. I'm going to, anytime I say Zionist state, I'm talking about um, Israel or their plan to set up a state in Palestine or their idea to like set up a, you know, Zionist state. Um, now, Herzl imagined the first Jewish settlers, settlers of Palestine arriving wearing, and I quote, a distinctive hat a la Stanley. Now, in case you forgot who he's referring to. He's referring to a man called Henry Morton Stanley. And let me just <laughs> let me just remind you who this person is. He is the man that found David Livingston and also the source of the River Nile, which is yay, white person shit. Um but he's also the man that helped King Leopold II steal the Congo and turn it into his personal thiefdom. Um, he's also, Stanley, has also been accused of shooting Africans like they were monkeys. Um, and he's also, Stanley, the man who named, who renamed a young Tanzanian boy um, be simply because he did not like his name. The original name for this young man was called Ndugu Mahali, um, but Stanley changed it to Kalulu. Kalulu. That's not his name. That's not his name. <laughs> um, and this Stanley is the man who inspired Herzl's Zionist vision. So, but before they were gifted Palestine, and make no mistake, Palestine was handed over to the Zionist on a silver platter by the British government. It was a gift. The first area that they were offered officially was in Kenya, which now takes us to the second question of this episode. What is the Uganda plan? And also question 2A, why is it called the Uganda plan? So let me answer 2A first. 
It is called the Uganda Plan because it is named after the railway that traversed East Africa. It was from Kampala to Kampala, Mombasa, Nairobi, Nanyuki, like all that fun stuff. Hence the Uganda Railway. Um, Now, it is important to note that until 1903, Zionism had a distinct political vision and goal. It had a recognizable cultural fingerprint, but it had not solidified its territorial ambitions. Sure, the dream was Palestine, but when people are literally killing you and yours, beggars can't be choosers. So before Kenya was offered, as I said, the Zionists looked to Argentina, South Africa, Mozambique, the Belgian Congo, and of course the Sinai Peninsula. Even Herzl himself briefly considered Argentina in his writings. And the Kenya was offered to the Zionists by the British government um, in 1903, even though the British government had no right to do this because the land was not theirs honestly this is some classic colonizer shit if i ever did see it and trust me i've seen a lot of colonizer shit um so let me tell you let me let me just walk you through how this entire thing happened um so the then secretary of state for the colonies a man called joseph chamberlain was on his way to to south africa before his departure he met with herzl and expressed his sympathy for the zionist cause going as far as to back the formation of a state in the sinai peninsula peninsula so um, as long as the people in cairo agree as they awaited the outcome of those deliberations, Chamberlain travelled to South Africa. On his way, he stopped in Kenya to see the empire's latest acquisition. Upon his arrival, he was immediately struck by the beauty of my country. And an idea came to him. Why not give the Zionists this empty land? Sorry, this land that definitely has people. Because they're black, I don't think they're people. Therefore, this land is basically empty. Yeah, why don't we give them that land? Um, at the time, the Kenyan government, the Kenyan colonial government, was trying to increase the settler population in the country and sought to try out different European populations, um, or rather, different populations. Period. Um, first, they considered the Finns or the or the Finnish, um, but they were ultimately rejected because the British believed that Finnish culture and the way of life was incompatible with life in Kenya, as if they, <laughs> white people, <laughs> had any right to make that determination when they themselves were counting on black labor specifically african black labor to make their wealth what mm, so frustrating the caucasity the caucasity of people genuinely just baffles my mind honestly how can you be this white how could aileen we're losing the plot let's just <sighs> Okay, where was I? So yes, um, after the local colonial government and the British government back home rejected the Finnish settlement, they considered um, inviting Indians to colonize Kenya because, again, whiteness is, and say it with me, class, a social construct. Very good. And because whiteness is a social construct, the white settlers also rebelled against this idea hard. And that's when Chamberlain had the brilliant idea of inviting the Zionists to colonize Kenya in August 1903. Now, I bet you're wondering, wait, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up, why? 
why would the agent, no, 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 the manager of the British Empire offer valuable newly acquired land to people who would not be considered to be British whilst in the UK, let alone even white or Anglo-Saxon within the UK? Because again, the goal was to increase um, Anglo-Saxon settler population. Like that was the goal as the settlers in Kenya saw it and ultimately as Chamberlain saw it himself. Um, so why did he offer a substantial bit of Kenya to the Zionists? Did he do this out of the goodness of his heart or is this politics um, or is it a little bit of both? Please, it, it was not done out of, out of the goodness of, of, of his heart. It was good old-fashioned politics. Um, quoting from Regina Sharif, a senior researcher in the International Development of Institute of Palestine Studies in Beirut, and I quote, Chamberlain saw the Jewish people as a ready-made group of European colonizers available to settle, develop, and hold all but empty land under the British Aegis. Chamberlain, in his efforts to expand the empire, was in continuous search for colonizers and settlers to bring at the same time civilization to the lesser breeds that lived without the law. End quote. Also, I hope you heard the heavy quotation marks in the whole lesser breeds bullshit. Um, now, the proposal would have guaranteed the Zionists 3.2 million acres in Wasingishu, um, which is near Eldoret, um, for the cat for the um, cartographically challenged, aka myself, this is Western Kenya. This new territory was to be called New Palestine, and it was fucking huge. I don't think, at least personally, I didn't quite realize how big 3.2 million acres is um but let me put this into context for you um 3.2 million acres is almost double the size of western kenya 3.2 million acres is bigger than the current size of palestine it is larger than puerto rico bigger than cyprus bigger than lebanon it it was it is bigger than Qatar. It is about the size of the Falklands Islands, um, and about and slightly smaller than, than the Bahamas. Like this is how much land that they were that they were about to be given. Again, land that the British had absolutely no right to apportion. And in this land, or in this new Palestine, um, the Zionists would be allowed to set up basically their own state within a state. They'd have their own rules, administrative procedures and norms, justice systems, everything. Now, before the Zionists, <laughs> before before the Zionists even had commented on this plan, the white settlers in Kenya had already lost their goddamn minds. And the reason I'm laughing is because white fragility is truly a thing to behold because it stands in stark contrast to the idea of like whiteness as this strong, powerful uh, thing. When white people are so fragile, they are so fucking fragile. Now. In 1904, led by Lord Delamere himself, the settlers let their anti-Semitism hang. They used the African Standard, currently known as The Standard, yes, the red newspaper back home, to print editorials with titles like The Country's Death Blow, Goodbye East Africa, Bloodshed, Juganda and Jew Props and the land of the noses jesus christ and pauper jews sorry this is, this is the first time that i'm actually like reading through these headlines holy fuck this is just like super anti-semitic my god <laughs> what the fuck how are you so 
afraid of your own sense of whiteness and your own sense of like power that you cannot even share. I mean, it makes sense if like at the back of your mind, you are constantly aware that everything you have, you've stolen. And if therefore you stole it from other people, you have no right to it. And other people can then steal it from you. Um, so I completely understand why they're also very, so, 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 so very fragile. Um, but Jesus, this is like, this is bad. This is real bad. Um, and it gets worse because not to be left out, a bishop of the Anglican Church of Kenya in Mombasa claimed that inviting the Jewish community to Africa would make it harder to convert black people to Christianity. And it's like, sir, Mr. Speaks to God, sir. Do you really, do you really think they are going to be the reason why we don't, why we don't follow your God, them, and not the fact that you claim to be hurting us in the name of your God? Do you really think, like, how, how much of your own Kool-Aid have you drunk, Mr. Talk to God, sir? Like, I'm pretty sure Jesus would have other things to say to you than, you know, about what you're saying and about what you're doing in, in his name. I think he would vehemently disagree. Um, Lord Delamere himself said, and I quote, Is it for this that the expensive railway has been built and large sums spent on country? Flood of people that class sure to lead to trouble with half-tamed natives jealous of their rights means extra staff to control them. Is British taxpayer proprietor of East Africa content that beautiful and valuable country be handed over to aliens? I'm just going to pause here for a minute and just and just like I I and just you know, just highlight the fact that he is calling a group of other Europeans aliens as if he is a native of Kenya, as if he is nothing more than a settler and a thief who took land that or rather was given land or bought land that did not belong to him. Um, and so I, I feel like, sir, you, you are projecting because you are very well aware that like if other white people who you, who you do not consider to be white were to come in and join your party, then the legitimacy of your own claim to this land would be deeply destroyed because if they don't have a right to it, neither do you. And you are very well aware of that fact, even though you pretend to be blind to it. But we see you. We see you, Lord Delamere, even if you are dead and buried somewhere. I don't give a fuck where you are. We see you. We s I see you. Um, returning back to his truly horrific quotation and just expanse of, of, of anti-Semitism, he concludes by basically saying, and I quote, Englishmen here appeal public opinion, especially those who know this country, against this arbitrary proceeding and consequent swamping bright future of country, end quote. And I just, I just, I can't, because the projection is just too much. Um, the, and the sense of entitlement is so baffling, it can only come from a white man. Um, but meanwhile, among the Zionists, this plan to settle in Kenya split Split, split the crew. Um, some were approving of establishing a state in Kenya. In fact, Davis Treich, I think is how you say that. T-R-I-E-T-S-C-H. Treich? Hang on. Ugh, I should have done this before recording. Honestly, I am... <laughs> I was not prepared. Uh, again, as one of my favorite podcast hosts says, Robert Evans, I am a hack and a fraud. And I've decided to lean into it. <laughs> anyway. Treich. 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 Okay. Okay, I got it. I got it. Treach. Davis Treach. 
um, he's a Zionist activist and at one of the Zionist Congresses, I think it was the sixth one, he showed a map that actually connected East Africa in proximity, like geographic proximity to Palestine by arguing that the Rift Valley was a natural continuation of the Jordan Valley. And like, I did a couple, I did like a bit of research and I don't know. Um, I I don't know enough to say he's right, but I, I, I don't think he's wrong necessarily. Um, as I hedge my bets um, and then you also have some other people at that same congress who were making connections between the lions in Kenya and the fact that you have like the lion of Judah right um, still you also had others within the congress who insisted upon Palestine as the only option for a homeland as Bar Yusuf reflects and I quote the proposal for settlement in East Africa created an internal conflict within the Zionist movement. Zionism as a movement was forced to decide as a question of principle. Was Zionism a movement that represented the Jews' right to sovereignty or a movement that aspired to realize the Jews' historical right to the land of Israel? End quote. Because again, those are two very different things. As I said in the very beginning, the Zionist state is not the same thing as a Zionist state in Palestine. Two very different things. Um, and as they deliberated in Europe, the British and Zionists discussed the feasibility of the Uganda plan. And so like Moses sending Joshua out to spy in the land of Canaan and its inhabitants, the Zionist Congress and British government set up a three-man team to survey the area in Wasingishu. It was comprised of an Englishman called Major A. St. Hill Gibbons, a Swiss professor called Alfred Kaiser, and a young Jewish Russian engineer called Nahum Wilbush. Each of these three men represented a major monotheistic faith, with St. Hill Gibbons representing Christianity, specifically Protestantism. Wow, that is a word. Um, the Swiss professor, surprisingly, representing Islam, because apparently he converted to Islam to facilitate his research, but still, a conversion is a conversion, and I really hope he, he, he stuck to it. Um, and last but not least, Nahum Wilbush was a Jewish man, specifically an avid Zionist whose entire family, himself included, was down for the cause of Palestine as the new homeland. He was invited to represent the interests of the Zionists because, of course, the original conceptualization of the expedition group did not include a representative of the people to whom the plan was said to benefit because... Again, I cannot stress this enough. We are dealing with internecine, interlocking systems of oppression that like, often undermine, like, it, 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 it's very complicated. Um, and so off the three men went um, for a five-week stay in Wasingishu. And like the 12 spies who surveyed Canaan, these three men reached very different conclusions about Wasingishu. Upon their arrival, Wilbush was disappointed by everything he saw. All he saw was dry, desolate land. And need I remind you, we are talking about Wasingishu in the Rift Valley of Kenya, which is one of the most agriculturally rich places in the country. It is a place where our wheat, one of the places anyway, that, that grows our wheat and our maize and, and sustains our dairy farms as well. And all Will Bush saw in this lush green environment was dry and desolate land. He concluded his report with, and I quote, where nothing exists, nothing can be done. Yet the situation becomes even more bugfuck because 
none of them agreed on what they saw. According to Bar Yusuf, and I quote, Gibbon saw one of the finest pieces of country within his experience. He saw rolling grass downs with a thick growth of sour veldt pasture. He saw anything but a desert, end quote. Now, it is possible that Gibbons, the English Christian man, was towing government line here and was telling the British government what they wanted to hear about Kenya, specifically so as to justify their, you know, acquisition of of this country. Acquisition. Um, But then his words are buttressed by the fact that I've seen Wasingishu for myself. That shit is so green. In fact, there was even a Jewish settler who moved to Kenya around that area, around that time, called a man called Mr. Sulsky. And he defended the proposal and the plan, saying, and I quote, Wasingishu has splendid forests of timber, abundance of water, good soil, and a very healthy climate to live in. This is the end quote. Now, let me pause before I continue with this man's quotation because it's like, it's just such colonizer energy. Because he then goes on to add, he, Wasingishu also has cheap labor. <laughs> because of course, Zionism and colonialism go together like French fries and ice cream. Um, are they the best? Are they like the first partners for each other? No. But do they work together nevertheless? Yes. Um, and... Mr. Solsky then goes on to say, and I quote, I have traveled through the Nandi, the nearest district to the Wasingishu Plateau. I could not pass through a village without being offered honey, milk, and some sheep. And do you not see this man very deliberately using the fact that like Canaan was called the milk, the land of milk and honey, right? Very, very deliberately using that same um, imagery and that same symbolism to defend this new potential, this potentially new homeland. So again, where was Wilbush looking that was so dry and desolate? Perhaps his ashy skin, because we both know white people don't moisturize for shit. You know what? That was out of pocket. I'm still keeping it in, though. Still out of pocket. Um, and also, like, what am I defending here? Because, like, did I want him to give Wasingishu a favorable rating? Uh, n- no, because of what's happening in Palestine. No. Um, but I would appreciate it if he represented Kenya truthfully and not ideologically. Like, I wish he had been honest about the fact that in his report that Kenya is perfect, it's gorgeous, but it's not Palestine. Like, I would have given him a lot more respect for saying that than for trying to lie to my face. <laughs> because like sir like i really think i really think he was counting on the fact that many people would not travel there so he could literally just speak and nobody and very few people would be able to counter check his 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 claims about the country um still this like another clear example of like wilbush generally looking at kenya through an ideological lens and not literally was the fact that he assessed Africa and Kenya specifically and the land that they were given as a land without a people. Remember that this was one of the earliest Zionist slogans and it's something that you hear being peddled around today. Um, and the slogan is a land without a people for a people without a land. Um, so surely if Africa was as barren as Wilbush claimed, then it would have been the perfect Zionist settlement, right? Remember, because if it's because if what you're looking for is a land without a people, so that you, your people without a land, can go live there, then if it's empty, then it's great, it's perfect. Um, but then that would 
but then this also reveals another inherent contradiction of Zionism. Thus, and returning to Bar Yusuf, and I quote, In Africa, the Zionist pioneer suddenly admits that the vision of a land without a people for a people without a land is pure fantasy. It is precisely an inhabited land that Wilbush wants for this colonialist project, end quote. Why? Because it is a lot easier to steal that which already exists than it is to try to build for yourself from scratch. Especially since you are in a new environment, um, with new animals you have no idea what the fuck are, with new agricultural practices, new soil that you're working with, and the only people that know how to do any of this are the previous inhabitants, or rather the current inhabitants of the land, because they've already done all the work in figuring out how to survive in this place and thrive in this place. This is knowledge that you can build upon and appropriate. This is how colonizers survived everywhere they went. But I also think it goes um, like a lot deeper than this. I also think that it is Wilbush and the designers properly and correctly um, 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 estimating um, their opponents and, and correctly choosing their battles. Because Wilbush later remarks, and I quote, there are only two possibilities. Either you must have a developed land or an undeveloped land. Now developed lands are inhabited and you must fight the inhabitants and turn them out. But if you cannot fight man, you must fight nature, end quote. And of the two, Mother Nature is a bitch who cannot be reasoned with. She always wins. Now, while all of this is happening in Africa and they're trying to figure out this new homeland, Jewish communities in Eastern Europe are experiencing yet more pogroms in 1904 and 1905. Um, in fact, there were, in fact, it was the pogroms within this uh, one to two year period that gave rise to the Zionist slogan of a land without a people for a people without a land. And it's ultimately what pushed the Zionist Congress to reject Kenya as, a, as an option for settlement. Because in Kenya, there is a risk that it would happen again, that they would lose their homes and everything they've built once Africans started rightfully campaigning for independence and by the early 20th century, I could, yeah, I can tell you for a fact, shit was stirring. Africans who already like had spent about 20 years living with their colonizers and kind of like sussing them out and kind of realizing, oh, y'all are here to stay. I, I didn't think, oh, things are changed. Mm -mm, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. And, and there was this, uh, this, the beginnings of a consciousness was stirring. Um, and I, I, yeah. And in Kenya, they would never be the original inhabitants of the land because, quite clearly, um, they are not African and there is no historic claim to this land. There, there, there is no history that they can exploit, co-opt and weaponize to justify their, um, their colonial intentions. Yet in Palestine, all of that existed. The case could be made for an original claim. Therefore, the Uganda plan brought into sharp relief the territorial dimensions of Zionism, where until this moment, the ultimate vision and cultural Zionisms had only been cemented. The Uganda plan and the crisis that followed cemented Palestine as the only option, hence Palestine or bust. 
It also cemented the connection between the Jewish people and the Jewish identity with Palestine the land. It affirmed that the ultimate goal of settlement was to move to Palestine. And, and it also laid the foundation for the Balfour Declaration in 1917 because um, Herzl was the one who negotiated with Chamberlain for Kenya. And through this negotiation, he got together with men like Lloyd George and um, I think his name is Alfred Balfour. And he met all these people. And even though he died before the Balfour Declaration, the fact that he had already started to create that path meant that it could be followed and that's it that is the end of this particular uh story or retelling of an event in history um to end i would like to end with this quote from a man called zeb jabotinsky um, he was a liberal democratic zionist who believed in granting arabs equal rights to the jewish people um in the territory of palestine um and yet even he um, said these words, and I quote, Zionist colonization must either be terminated or carried out against the wishes of the native population. This colonization can therefore be continued and make progress only under the protection of a power independent of the native population, an iron wall which will be in a position to resist the pressure to the native population, end quote. What we're seeing happening in Palestine, what we're seeing Israel doing to Palestine, the fact that the major world powers are doing nothing, are saying nothing, and are in fact making it harder to fight for Palestinian rights and fight for human rights, actually, um, is not the system being broken. It is the system working as intended. This was always the plan. The plan was always to get, or rather the plan at some point became and and now has always and now has become and has been to get the backing of a powerful nation to support your claim and to help you resist the calls to respect the rights of the people whom you are colonizing. The reason why Britain and France and even the US to a certain extent had to give back its colonies is because the native population were able to resist that power right but now palestinians we are trying everyone on this side is trying on their behalf and we're going to keep on trying for them but remember that right now what you're seeing is the system working as intended and to solve it is not to double down and figure out how to rework the system to solve it is to admit that the system was created broken and to create a new one um don't you think it's about time Anyway, Thank you so much for listening to the Utajuo Hujui podcast. I really appreciate you giving me your time of day. I know that your time is very valuable. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at utajuahujui.pod. That is at U-T-A-J-U-A. H-U-J-U-I dot P-O-D on Instagram. Please don't forget to like, share, review, do all the nice things. I could really use the boost. Okay, enjoy the rest of your time on this planet. Goodbye.